0: Working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana.
2: And financially
1: supported by listeners like you.
2: Good morning and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Glenn Leitner.
3: And I'm Linda Leitner, opening today's show with some local environment related news. The Sycamore Land Trust has acquired two square miles or 115 acres that will be added to the bean blossom conservation area. That's according to an announcement on the organization's website. The land will not be open to the public for a while since they must make plans for how to protect the land and figure out the best way for the public to access it. Volunteers will plant trees and native plants while helping keep out invasive plants that are harmful to the ecosystem. The 20,000-acre Bean Blossom Nature Preserve is home to 15 endangered species including bobcats, bald eagles, and Indiana bats.
2: Bloomington's Department of Economic and Sustainable Development, in collaboration with the Utilities Department, has commissioned a new mural for 423 South Washington Street. The installation, entitled Waterways, is a homage to the various bodies of water used by the Bloomington community, and is located on the Utilities Archive Building. Assistant Director of the Economic Development for the Arts, Sean Starowitz, says that after a nationwide call-out, artist Emily Wilson was chosen as the winning designer.
1: And so Emily's kind of proposals were the strongest
4: because they represented all the bodies of water that City Utilities uh, uses. Uh, or has used in the past, like Leonard Springs and Griffey Lake and all that kind of stuff.
2: The mural is part of a larger project by the City of Bloomington Arts Commission to help bring works of public art to city infrastructure. Past projects include a mural on the 3rd Street median, as well as traffic calming devices on the near west side.
3: And now to national news. Hall No! was an awareness and action tour held June 13th to 25th along the proposed uranium haul route of the Canyon Mine, owned and operated by Energy Fuels Incorporated. The haul threatens Native American sacred sites, the Grand Canyon, drinking water, and communities along the route. The Canyon Mine haul route is a distance of 300 miles. Up to 24 trucks going both ways would have the capacity to haul up to 30 tons of highly radioactive ore each day. The truckloads are to be covered with thin tarps, the only shielding from the uranium and the only protection from environmental contamination. The proposed routes would go through heavily populated areas, including Flagstaff, Arizona, as well as through rural Navajo Reservations and near Hopi Reservation. The uranium ore's final destination would be Energy Fuels White Mesa Mill, only 3 miles from the Ute Mountain tribal community of White Mesa, Utah. According to the Hall No website, the indigenous-led tour stopped in seven communities as it traced the proposed hall route from Bluff, Utah to Red Butte, Arizona, where it culminated in Havasupi prayer gathering. The tour and related anti-hall activism are rallying under the hashtag #StopCanyonMine. Mine.
2: Recently, we reported on the good news that a judge ruled the Army Corps of Engineers needed to expand its environmental review of the Dakota Access Pipeline. The Standing Rock and Cheyenne River Sioux tribes of North Dakota were disappointed, however, when the judge ruled on June 14th that oil could continue to flow through the pipeline while the review was being conducted in the coming months. At a later date, the judge could still order the pipeline to be shut down after a series of hearings to be held throughout the summer the pipeline began operating on June 1st. The tribes have been protesting the pipeline's construction for over a year. The pipeline, which cost over $3 billion, runs from western North Dakota to Potoka, Illinois, where it's connected to another pipeline that carries crude oil to refineries in the Gulf of Mexico.
3: The U.S. Supreme Court has refused to consider the case of massive oil pollution in the Ecuadorian rainforest caused by the oil company Chevron and handed the company a victory. Ecuadorian indige- indigenous and farming communities have been trying to obtain justice in the case for two decades. They won a multi billion dollar judgment against the company in Ecuador's courts in 2013 and have been trying to collect the money from the company ever since. From 1964 to 1992, Texaco, which Chevron later bought, dumped polluted wastewater into open pits all over the Ecuadorian jungle, contaminating the water supplies. The local people call the area the Amazon Chernobyl after the nuclear disaster in Ukraine. Chevron has turned around and is now suing the villagers and their U.S. lawyers in retaliation. The company has spent an estimated $2 billion and used 2,000 lawyers to attack a lawyer acting for the plaintiffs.
2: Meanwhile in Canada, Greenpeace is facing its greatest threat ever. A giant Canadian forestry and newsprint company called Resolute Forest Products is suing it for $220 million. The company claims that Greenpeace is an illegal enterprise, a racket designed only to raise money. The company's goal is to sue Greenpeace out of existence using a law designed to defeat organized criminal enterprises like the Mafia. Greenpeace is a fierce critic of Resolute's logging practices in Canada's boreal forests, which are home to indigenous people and endangered wildlife. Resolute alleges that Greenpeace has cost the company about 100 million Canadian dollars in lost revenue because of its campaign to portray Resolute as a forest destroyer. Greenpeace says the lawsuit could affect individuals and groups that seek to make positive changes by making it too expensive and risky to engage in free speech, advocacy, and use of expert opinions and research.
3: In more forest-related news, researchers at the University of Michigan and Michigan State University are projecting changes to Midwest forest through the year 2100. Funding for the project comes from NOAA, and their fundings apply to Indiana. As temperature rises and precipitation patterns change, regions once suitable for traditional forest types will shift northward. However, many forest species will be unable to shift fast enough to keep up with the pace of warming. The maple, beech, birch forest type of the Great Lakes region is projected to be almost entirely displaced, outcompeted by forest types typically found farther south. Forest migration, or the shifting of multiple species of trees to more favorable habitat, is limited by the fact that forests are already fractured by human activities such as farming and urban development. Some northern tree species may be able to migrate northward at a rate of up to 60 miles per century, but suitable habitat for tree species in the Midwest will shift as much as 400 miles by 2100. Natural migration rates will be too slow to keep up with climate change.
2: That's right, Linda. Species of trees in Indiana that are likely to be impacted include beech and birch, which are predicted to leave the state almost entirely. Maple will also move north, and Indiana's maple syrup industry is expected to be hard hit. If greenhouse gas emissions rates remain stable, tap season may start 30 days sooner by year 2100, and southern maples will be increasingly less viable for producing syrup. And ash trees will be hit hard as climate change compounds the ongoing threat posed by the emerald ash borer. The borer larvae can be killed by winter cold, but even Minnesota winters of late have failed to wipe the larvae out. The Indiana State tree, the tulip poplar, is expected to migrate significantly to the north. And have you noticed that many of the blue spruce trees locally are looking half dead? Colorado blue spruce trees have long been among the most popular conifers for landscaping in Indiana. Planted due to their good growth rate, stately form, and of course their blue foliage. Unfortunately, blue spruce trees are subject to a wide range of insect and disease problems that can impact their growth and aesthetic appeal. And these disease issues are exacerbated by climate change.
3: Scientists at Purdue University have also contributed to a tree study. After analyzing extensive data collected on 86 tree species in the eastern United States, a research team led by Professor Song Lin Fei found that over the past 30 years, most tree species have been shifting westward or northward in response to climate change. Response to climate change differ by species. Deciduous trees like oak are primarily moving westward evergreens are responding in a different way. They're moving northward. And that's the news for this week. For Eco Report on WFHB, I'm Linda Leitner.
2: And I'm Glenn Leitner. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired or if you have ideas for future stories. Please send emails to earth at wfhb.org.
3: In today's Eco Report feature, we hear part two of Correspondent Norm Holy's interview with Indiana University Professor Ellen Ketterson. Ketterson is part of a team of researchers who have been selected to work on a large-scale response to climate change in Indiana. The group was selected as part of the University's Grand Challenges Initiative, and IU is investing $55 million in their work.
1: One aspect of your uh, research is going to be talking about uh, extreme weather and its impact on agriculture. Can you describe where, where things stand at the moment?
4: As we present this information to people, we're focusing first on the kinds of changes that have already occurred, and then second, the kinds of changes that are forecast. And I think one of the most important points to convey is the fact that it it's not done yet. <laughs> you know, we're noticing changes, and uh, and they're having costs, and we're adapting to them along the way. Uh, but nevertheless, the costs are impressive. And then, as I say, it's not over yet. There's all all the projections suggest that uh, Indiana's and the Middle West's uh, climate and environment. Sometimes I say environment because I want to be more inclusive about not just what the temperature is or the rainfall, but also how the organisms, including ourselves, are responding. So just in the last five years, uh, estimates are that extreme weather, highly unpredictable droughts combined with early flooding, uh, has cost Indiana's agriculture $6 billion just in the last five years. And then not agriculture, but back to the Lyme disease, the data from the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, reports a 430% increase in the incidence of Lyme disease already in Indiana. A man named Keith Clay, who's a professor in the biology department, has been studying invasive species and ticks uh, for the last 10 or 15 years, and there's a... A link to an interview with him that appeared in the Chicago Tribune in which he was uh, reporting the yet greater increase in uh, Lyme disease in, in this coming summer. So that's the kind of thing that's happening now. And then the two big ones that relate to temperature, but all that follows from temperature, if we project, okay, so let's project uh, 30 years then look at see what the Great Lakes' water temperatures might be by 2050. I'm not sure I'm adding very well. Yes, I am. Okay, <laughs> 20 plus 30 is 50. Uh, the project- projection is for a 7-degree increase in the water temperatures. And oh. then you go, okay, well, what's
1: oh, Is that Fahrenheit or Celsius?
4: Celsius. And the water temperatures uh, will in- impact algal blooms and uh, obviously fish populations and water quality. So being prepared uh, for changes in water, the in- increased need for water, and the fact that the nature of the water uh, will be altered is something we need. It's it's about preparation. It's about being prepared for that. And then increases in air temperature by 2050 another 30 years will have impact on corn and soybean production and forests. And and we think you know attractiveness to industry. And attractiveness to the state we live in for uh, wanting our kids to stay home, you know, that's always nice, and uh, attracting people to want to live here who will, will make contributions uh, to our economy. There are current impacts and there are projected impacts, and some of those will be call for example disaster planning for cities. Uh, a professor named Beth Gaisley in the School of Public and Environmental Affairs is an expert on disaster planning, and she's part of the Grand Challenge group, and so she will be conducting research that will be helpful to communities like Indianapolis and others around the state.
1: I appreciate you sending me your slides of the talk that you gave at the uh, IU Foundation, and one of them that I just was wondering if you could comment on was the tulip tree uh, distribution now, and I think it was 2070. So does that mean that the the current trees will die, or they simply won't reproduce?
4: Let me just back up for a second. So tulip trees have beautiful flowers, as you probably know, orange and green, and many, many uh, male floral parts, you know. Um, and they're our state tree. So there's something iconic about tulip trees in Indiana. And currently, all of Indiana is a suitable place for the tulip tree to grow. And so if you look at a map, and for me, maps convey more information than numbers like 4 degrees centigrade or 7 degrees centigrade, if you're talking about air temperature, water temperature. If you look at how that plays out in terms of where trees that we use for forestry or for shade for our homes, uh, how that plays out in terms of where they live now and where they're likely to live later, that conveys knowledge to me in a way that My mind and I think other people's minds can grasp. So it takes trees a while to die, um, but they need to replace themselves in order for the forest to be ones that we can both harvest and enjoy. By projections, because of the increases and changes in the predictability of rainfall and also, maybe to a lesser degree, temperature, they'll be seeking cooler climates. So if you look at a map of where tulip trees will grow in 2070, there aren't any tulip trees uh, replacing themselves in Indiana, but they are up in the Michigan, where they don't grow now, or only in the southern parts of Michigan, higher up in New England and up in Nova Scotia and in the Appalachians. So that in our eastern mountains, it will still be cool enough to support.
1: Are you going to have a website uh, that the public can access to follow the, the course of the various research areas,
4: uh, We very much are. We are still just getting started. Okay, so official start date is July 1. Um, But there's currently a website that describes the Grand Challenge Initiative Prepared for Environmental Change under um, the IU Vice President for Research and um, the Grand Challenge Initiative.
1: So sometime after the 1st of July there will be a a link. uh,
4: Already a link, uh, and it will... Uh, be populated with content consistently after we're up and running, but there is already content. Here it is. It's um, grandchallenges.iu.edu.
1: Now, at the end of the project, uh, will there be a a document that's published specifically for uh, the public?
4: I would anticipate yes. So that's a step we haven't reached yet. I'm quite certain that we'll be turning in annual reports to the vice president for research and to the president of the university. They've uh, entrusted us with a large sum of money, and we feel very keenly uh, the responsibility to deliver.
1: I'd like to thank you for your time today and your very uh, careful explanations of things, and uh, I know our listeners will be fascinated. So I've had people already say, you know, tell me when that interview is going to be on the radio, because I want to be sure that I listen to it. They're looking forward to hearing from you.
4: Well, that's very nice. We can't do this alone. We need the citizens of Indiana. And so that third pillar that I never got to was effective communication, where we understand each other, what, what are the barriers to common purpose, and uh, let's get going.
1: This is Norm Hallie. WFHB. I've been speaking with Professor Ellen Ketterson today on her area of uh, climate change, the grant that she has that will involve many of the uh, researchers around the state. Thank you very much for your time.
3: Eco Report is currently seeking volunteer journalists to contribute short weekly headlines about ecological issues from indigenous resistance to infrastructure projects to climate change and biological diversity. Commitment is light and you can set your own schedule. For more information, email us at earth@wfhb.org at or call 812-323 one, two, zero, zero. It's time now for In Nature, a segment focusing on the flora and fauna of south-central Indiana.
0: This is In Nature. Beech, Fagus grandifolia, is a common tree in our deciduous forests. In this area, the Climax Forest consists of beech and sugar maple, two trees that germinate well in dense shade. The beech prefers rich, well-drained soils. It can live for three to 400 years and often reaches 80 feet in height, with a diameter in excess of 3 feet. The canopy is wide and spreading, leaving open spaces well-shaded and park-like underneath. Seedlings grow from the shallow roots and can create dense thickets of young trees, among more mature ones. The beech has a distinctive thin gray bark that entices people to carve their names. It is easily scarred, and disease can enter these wounds and shorten the tree's life, the tree will often hold onto its leaves during the winter and can be easily spotted in the woods. The leaf bud is long and thin and opens out to a thin, elliptical-shaped leaf with parallel veins and coarse teeth. They decompose slowly and thus make a deep layer of duff on the forest floor. The separate male and female flowers are small and inconspicuous and bloom when the leaves are unfolding. Pollen from the male flower is blown by the wind onto the female flower, eventually forming a small nut encased in a spiny husk. Their abundant production of nuts every two or three years provides food for many animals of the forest, including squirrels, chipmunks, and raccoons. Humans, too, enjoy the sweet nut. It is also a wonderful denning tree, since it forms cavities that can be used by many animals. You've been listening to In Nature.
2: And now for our weekly events calendar. A brief history of nature preserves will take place at Spring Mill State Park on Friday, June 30th, from 5 to 7 p.m. Nature preserves turned 50 this year. Take a driving and hiking tour of Spring Mill's nature preserves on this interesting tour. Meet Tony at the Twin Caves parking lot.
3: Enjoy beautiful butterflies at the Town State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Sunday, July 2nd from 3 to 4.30 p.m. Drop by to design your own butterfly and learn about the best place to look for butterflies and discover a couple of the species that you're likely to see meet at the activity center patio.
2: Take advantage of a flora field day at the Allens Creek State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Tuesday, July 4th, from 9.30 to 11.30 a.m. Here is your opportunity to work on the flora identification skills. As you work with a naturalist, you will learn proper use and application of an ID key, which opens the door to identifying thousands of species. The event is free.
3: With the full moon coming up, enjoy a full moon night paddle at Griffey Lake on Sunday, July 9th from 9 to 10.30 p.m. Experience an evening of peace and serenity during the full moon. Watercraft paddles and life jackets will be provided. Go to bloomington.indiana.gov parks to register by July 6th.
2: The Homegrown Indiana Farm Tour is offering two opportunities to experience and explore farm life in south-central Indiana. The Blue Hour, Blue Hour Farm and the Marble Hill Farm will welcome tour participants from 4 to 8.30 p.m. this Sunday, June 9th. Blue Hour Farm is a three-acre organic vegetable farm using organic practices and permaculture techniques to grow healthy, nutrient-dense foods. Marble Hill Farm recently received the first USDA grass-fed beef cert- certification in Indiana. Marble Hill partners with the organization's Girls Incorporated, the Banneker Community Center, Wonder Lab, and Indiana University to increase farm-based education and experiential learning opportunities. The tour culminates with a dinner prepared by local chefs, which will include vegetarian and vegan options. This farm-to-fork experience is a ticketed event. Please register by July 3rd at Bloomington.IN.GOV. Slash farmers market. More information can be found by contacting Marsha Veldman at eight one two three four nine three seven three eight or sending an email to Veldman M at bloomington. IN. Gov. The bus departs from Bloomington City Hall at four fifteen PM.
3: at
2: this week's news stories were written by Robert Veldkamp, Kathy Norton, Ashley Curtis, Linda Green, and Norm Holy. The feature was produced by Norm Holy and edited by Joe Crawford. Rebecca Muller edited the script. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Our engineer is Jim Thrasher. Executive producer is Joe Crawford. For WFHB, I'm Glenn Leitner.
3: And I'm Linda Leitner. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! And on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news and resistance. Until then, Eco Report encourages you to take direct action to defend the earth. And I'd also like to wish my husband today happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> happy
0: birthday, dear. <laughs> Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas
1: directly to the Eco Report staff.
0: The email address is
2: earth at
0: That's earth at wfhb.org.